let's take God's word in our hands and turn to 2 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 990. And for the last four and a half months, uh, we have been investing a great amount of time and energy into this, uh, these two letters in the first century that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to this church in modern day Greece called Thessalonica. And he's invested a lot of time and energy with these people who were new followers to Jesus Christ. They were, in essence, kind of learning their their way of what it meant to be Christians. And we have invested our time under the heading of being ready as followers of Christ uh, to serve and honor God in the ways that he's called us to. And uh, we've got one more week. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll finish up this uh, final letter uh, that Paul has written. And, and my hope and prayer is that as we have looked at a wonderful example, these Thessalonians were people who had allowed God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to have their lives transformed, to have their lives changed. And we learned on, on Friday as a church, we had a movie night where we watched the incredible movie, and I say incredible, a great movie, uh, telling the true story of Woodlawn High School in 1973, where one student uh, would have his life changed. And as a result of that life change, a football team would have their life changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because a football team was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a community was changed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then surrounding communities would be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before you know it, an entire state was impacted by one individual who was transformed by the gospel. That story would be told not only in a movie 30 or 40 years later, but it would also be told uh, during that time in magazines like Life Magazine, Time Magazine, and Sports Illustrated would tell the story of one life being changed and as a result seeing in the concurrent circles, if you will, of expansive impact where the lives of people are changed. And we come to a place where a small church in the town of Thessalonica in northern Greece would be changed. A handful of people, lives would be changed by the gospel. And what we learned is that not only did it impact the city of Thessalonica, but all over Macedonia, the entire region was changed by this little group of people who got on fire for Jesus Christ. And we, now, 2,000 years later, and a half a planet away, are being challenged and encouraged and impacted by the model they make. And so let me tell you that one of the great lessons we can learn from the letters of the Thessalonians is that one life changed by Jesus Christ can have a massive impact in the lives of those around us. And so let's look at our text this morning because the only, one way that we will keep ourselves from that kind of impact is by being lazy or idle in the calling that God has given. And we will see through the apostles' words today and through our mother's example of what hard work looks like and the importance of hard work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So let's look at our scripture this morning. Let me read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6. We'll go all the way through to verse 13. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day 
that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and as we look at another passage, as we close out this letter that we've invested such time and energy into, to glean its truths, we do so with Mother's Day on our hearts and minds. We thank you for the example of hardworking moms who dedicated themselves through sacrificial giving of their time and energy to serve us and to serve the community around them and the church around them, uh, to serve uh, the God who created them. Lord, I recognize this morning that amidst the celebrations, amidst the uh, phone calls and the um, gifts that are given, that there are many here and many throughout our world that Mother's Day is not a day of rejoicing. I think, Lord, of some, some people that, that this is a struggle, a burden, For those that maybe, Lord, are estranged from their children, moms that maybe have a difficult relationship with their, her kids, or maybe a person who has a difficult relationship with their mom, this is not a day of celebrating, and Lord, I pray that you would extend grace and mercy. For the woman who's struggling with infertility and desiring nothing more than to be a mom, Lord, I pray that you would give encouragement to that heart. Lord, for uh, the child or the mom who has struggled because of a difficult upbringing or because of issues of abuse or struggle, Lord, I pray that you would be uh, with them. For the mom who sought fit to uh, raise her children in the fear and admonition of the Lord only to have her children walk away from the faith, Lord, I pray for encouragement for those moms as well. Lord, we are gifted and graced by the women of our congregation, both moms and non-moms alike. Lord, uh, you've made this place a special place because of the women uh, who serve and, and honor you in all that they say and do. So we take time to pause and thank you for this grace and thank you for the example that you've given us in uh, hardworking uh, women and moms who seek to serve and honor you. Now, Lord, we pray that we would hear from your word again this morning, that it would challenge us in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today we celebrate Mother's Day. We honor them. And uh, as we took time to uh, put together our preaching schedule on this day, we looked to uh, the idea of taking uh, a week off of our series and focusing in on moms and finding a text outside of it that would speak specifically to moms. But as the preaching team from our four campuses looked to uh, the subject matter, we thought it was nothing more fitting uh, than to be reminded of the hard work that moms uh, play in our 
lives and the hard work that they do, whether in the workplace, outside of the home, or within the home, we have been blessed, many of us, as me included, with a godly mom and a wonderful wife who sa- sacrificially serves and honors God and, and, and loves on her family by working hard in all that she does. And we come to a passage of Scripture that speaks to the um, command of all of us to work hard. The command that we are not to be given to idleness or laziness. And this morning we uh, live in a culture where idleness and laziness are celebrated instead of critiqued. And it was true in the days of the Thessalonians as well. Uh, we don't know exactly what caused this idleness or this laziness, but scholars have, have poured over these verses and have come up with two very uh, plausible reasons why idleness and laziness in the life of the Thessalonians was ripe. Uh, the first thing was is that there was confusion about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the coming of our Lord and Savior. And there was question, uh, really there was teaching that was going on that had worked the Thessalonians up into a world. They had been told and they had taken the words of Jesus that this generation will not pass away until they see the coming of our Lord and signs and wonders. And so that generation was about to pass away. And so the Thessalonians, many in the church, were thinking that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so I want you to think for a moment, if I was to tell you without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is going to come back in the month of June, how many of you would go to work tomorrow? I mean, really, at the end of the day, if Jesus is coming back and we know for sure he's coming back, then why are we wasting our time putting together uh, hard work and getting up every morning uh, knowing that Jesus Christ is going to come back? What is retirement? What is a 401k when Jesus is coming back so very soon? And so there were people within the church that said, because Jesus is coming back and he's going to come back quickly, then I don't need to work. I don't need to go to work. I don't need to waste my time in such tasks. That's the first reason that Paul may have been writing these people. The second reason is within the context of their culture. Thessalonica is in northern Greece, and Greeks in the first century was a place that was filled with all sorts of philosophies and ideas and thoughts that surrounded the idea of what we call Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that was twofold. Number one, that the material world, all that could be seen and touched in and of itself was evil. And so anything you did in the body, there was an evilness to it. And that uh, the enlightened mind would be one who would uh, push away that which was material for that which was intellectual, that which was spiritual, that which was um, uh, philosophy and thinking. And so if someone went to work, uh, they did that which was subhuman. Barbarians and slaves did the work. Uh, real people, they philosophized, they thought, they, they uh, had spiritual moments and time. And so to go to work and to work with your hands and to sweat was a menial thing. It was being less than human. And so the Christians in the church of the Thessalonian uh, people was a church that was given to laziness and idleness. Paul had addressed it earlier in his first letter where he had told them to live quietly and to work with their hands. And Paul's going to share with us that there is a command from Scripture that we are called to work 
unto the Lord. Now, we need to recognize a couple things about work. First of all, work is something that, for many of us, we look as, at, as a necessary evil. We work so that we can have money, so that we can have food, so that we can own a car, a home, that we can have clothing on our back, so that we can live life. But really, at the end of the day, I, I would rather not work. I would far rather be on vacation. So this viewpoint of work is one that goes outside of Scripture. But let me help you understand this uh, culture of hating work. It's best put in this poem that I found. I don't mind work if I have nothing else to do. I quite admit that it's true that now and then I shirk. Particularly boring kinds of work, don't you? But on the whole, I think it's fair to say, provided I can do it my own way and that I need not have to start it today, that I quite like work. Is that some of you this morning? If I can do it my way, if I can choose the time of which it will be done, if I get to do the only the enjoyable parts of it, well then therefore I like work. In one New York law firm, the bosses put a notice on the notice board for all the employees to see. Sometime between starting time and quitting time, without infringing upon lunch periods, coffee breaks, rest periods, storytelling, ticket selling, holiday planning, and the rehashing of yesterday's television program, we ask that each employee try to find some time for a work break. This may seem radical, but it might aid in your steady employment and secure yourself regular paychecks. There is something about us that makes us have this thought that work is bad. We're offended by the very mention of work on a weekend. Let's not talk about that. I have two days where I don't have to worry about that, and you, pastor, have to bring up this dirty word of work. But here's the thing. Absent from our culture is a biblical understanding that work is extremely valuable, and despite our negative feelings about it at times, work is in fact a gift from God himself. For the Greeks of that day that saw it as a menial task to work, God reminds us that work was not beneath himself. God created God worked, the scripture says in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that God worked those six days of creation. And then on the seventh day, the scripture tells us, and he rested from his work. The God of the universe says work is a noble thing. And God saw that when he worked, it was good. In the garden... Before sin would enter the world and enter uh, the life of humanity, God places Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 2.15, after placing them in the garden, he gives them the assignment that they are to tend and care and oversee the garden. They are to work in the garden. You see, some of us think that work is a curse from the fall. And work isn't a curse from the fall. Before the fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were working. But at the fall, something changed. Work would still bring fulfillment, but work would become more difficult. 
Work would involve sweat and struggle. Work would, uh, in some ways, at times, work against us. That same garden that Adam and Eve were to work in would now cause them sweat, and it would fight back at them. Weeds would grow. Thistles would come about. And once you would pull them, they would come back. It wouldn't be easy to do that which we did before the fall. But amidst all the frustration and all the struggle and hardship that at times work is, let us never forget that work remains a good gift from God to man. And so as people, whether as mothers in the home or in the workplace, whether as individuals, whether students at school, work is something that God has given us and should produce in us a thankful attitude for the opportunity he gives. But what is work? John Stott puts it this way. Work is the expending of energy, the expending of energy, whether manual or mental or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Let me read that all in one statement. Work is the expending of energy, whether manual, mental, or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Now, let me stop here. It's Mother's Day. And why would I have this be the message for Mother's Day? Because I am a blessed individual, and I believe many of you are blessed individuals because you have moms in your life who showed you, who modeled for you what it means to work. Now, it's, at times we think, well, where did I learn my work ethic from? And a lot of us would say, I learned my work ethic from my dad. Well, let me tell you something. For many of us, the only thing we see of our fathers with regards to work is them pulling out of the driveway and pulling back in. Some of us never have been to where our fathers worked. Never had the ability to watch, really, to see what our dads did. Let me be honest with you. Some of us have no idea whether our dads just pulled out of the driveway, drove around for eight hours, and then came back home. Okay? And there was always money there. There was always a roof over our head. So we don't know what dad was doing. We know he was, he was doing something because he came home cranky. He came home tired. But we never saw it. But on the flip side, moms, we saw moms work. We have a bird's eye view as children watching our moms toil. We recognize and know that, that things within our home would not be the same if mom wasn't working. I can assure you in the Bedal home, Amanda's the first one up and the last one to bed. She's the one that's always making sure all the trains are running on time. She was on the ladies' retreat last week, and i got to be quite honest with you, I had no idea where my children were at half the time. I had no idea. They're here. We counted all for them. They're all good. We have three. I think that's all we had, but I think three. But I mean, at times, it is quite amazing. I remember last year, around this time, Amanda had just had cancer surgery, and uh, uh, it was time to plan for all that was going to go on. We were going to make sure we covered the bases. It took no less than 20 of us to make sure we did all that Amanda did. Women work hard. Moms are an example 
as to what hard work is. And here's the thing. When John Stott says that it's an expending of energy, both manual and mental or both, we recognize the role that moms play. They work hard in the body, doing all that it takes to raise a family and to nurture the family God has given them. There is a mental anguish. I mean, it's amazing that moms still find sanity in the raising of kids and in the ministry to their husbands, I might add. Why do they do it? Notice they do it in the service of others. Well, what are they doing? They're expending energy. Look to the slide in front of you. Moms do a lot. Everything from facilities manager to CEO to laundry operator, computer operator, housekeeper, cook, daycare teacher, van driver, janitor, and the best one, psychologist, okay? Whether they work in the home only or in the, in the outside world or in the home or outside of the home, in 2013, someone had put some numbers to, um, uh, to a paper and said the base salary for all of these jobs for 40 hours is $37,549. Now, here's the problem. Uh, they actually work 94 hours a week. Okay, and so then we have to pay them 54 hours of overtime, which comes to $76,000 and some change, and that would mean a total income, listen, a total income of $113,568, that was in 2013, and here's what we pay mom, and we think we're really good at it, today we will buy her a card, we'll stop by the missions uh, bake sale, buy a cake, and say, mom, you're worth it, uh, my mom, my mom is looking for 18 times 113. That's $1.9 million. And I give her a hug and a kiss, and she says she's blessed. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Moms are hard workers. And God has given us moms who serve us. They serve us. They minister to us. Now, why do they do it? Stott reminds us they do so because it fulfills them. Well, that's insanity. This work fulfills you, mom? This work fulfills you, wife? To minister in this way? To do all of this work? To work all of these hours? So that your children can neglect to say thank yous because your husband will take for granted the things you do. Why do you do it? Because God has uniquely given moms a heart and a passion to serve those around them. They want to benefit, bring benefit to the community around them, including their home, and to bring glory to God. And so before we talk about this command to work hard, we stop and we celebrate that moms are doing this work. They're doing it amongst us. And we should celebrate it. We should applaud it. But we need to also recognize that the scriptures remind moms and wives of the temptation of being lazy. Here's my only challenge for you this morning. It is tempting for wives and moms to be lazy. In the great passage of Scripture devoted to women, Proverbs 31, in verse 27 it tells us that the virtuous woman or wife watches over her affairs 
of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness or laziness. So mom, woman, if that is a struggle for you, not your pastor, but God says it needs to change. You are to work hard. But we're told that all of us are called to work hard. In fact, more than two dozen times in the book of Proverbs, the issue of laziness or the sluggard, what a great word, the sluggard, the lazy one, is going to lose out on opportunities, miss out on blessing as a result of their laziness. In fact, in Proverbs 10, verse 4, it says something very important. That lazy hands will make a man poor... But diligent hands will bring forth wealth. Now this wasn't just a temptation in the Old Testament times. In fact, in every one of Paul's letters to his churches, he addresses at one point or another the importance of working hard. He tells the church in Colossae that they are to work for their earthly masters in such a way as if God is their employer. Paul tells uh, the people in Corinth that he has devoted himself to working with his hands as an example for all to follow. And here in our passage, the most extensive writing on the issue of work within the Christian life, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul gives a zinger of a command. He says, listen, as a child of God, if you are unwilling to work, you will not eat. So Paul shares with us three things that I want to walk through very quickly this morning. I'm going to put them before you so you've got them. He's going to give an exhortation as to the importance of working. He's going to give us an example in his own life. And then he's going to encourage us. And I think that as you read this passage, you have a mom's handprints all over it, even though it comes from an apostle's words. Notice verse 6, the exhortation. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Let's stop there. Paul speaks as if a mother is speaking to her kids. But this isn't the first time he shares it. He has shared in his opening letter of First Thessalonians that they're called to work. And he comes back now two years later in Second Thessalonians, and he says, you still aren't doing it. So I command you, you better listen up. When Paul says, now we command you, he is garnering the attention of the people. As a child growing up, I knew the degree of which my mom was displeased with me. And here's how I knew it. And maybe you might shine some light on you as well. When I heard my mom say the name Tim, everything was good. When I heard Timothy, she was a bit agitated. When I heard Timothy Daniel, she was getting mad. When I heard Timothy Daniel Bedal, I better start moving. When my mom forgot my name... It meant run for the hills. Paul is wanting to get their attention. And notice how he gets their attention. We command you, listen up. 
Brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My mom used to have a phrase, and again, it would help monitor where I was at with her. My mom would say, oh, Timothy Daniel Badal, as God is my witness. When your mom conjures the name of God and brings him into your affairs, you better be ready. And what Paul says is, listen, I'm commanding you, but I'm commanding you, I am bringing the greatest authority into the picture. The Lord Jesus Christ. You better listen. So what does he say? He says, I want you to keep away from idle people. Boy, I heard that a lot growing up as a kid. My mom would say, I'm not sure you should be hanging out with so-and-so. They're not a good example. I don't like how they talk. I don't like how they act. I don't like the lack of respect. Stay away from so-and-so. They're no good for you. And I'd be reminded that bad company corrupts good character. And Paul says, like a great mom would, be careful with who you hang out with. Now what he says is what those who are walking in idleness is is the phrase that was used in the Greek culture of a Greek uh, battalion of soldiers. And they're marching through, if you will, the city of Athens, all doing the same thing. And a person who walks in idleness is one who is not walking in formation with fellow soldiers. They're out of step. They're doing that which is wrong. And so you can spot them a mile away because they're not doing what everybody else is doing. And so a lazy individual is one who easily is seen because they're walking out of formation. They've gone AWOL. Now let's take a moment to disclaim something. Paul isn't talking about those who can't earn a living because of illness or some sort of disability or, or because of age. Nor is Paul speaking to widows and orphans who find themselves in places of distress because of circumstances of death or trial or tribulation. But what Paul is commanding us to steer away from are those who can work, C-A-N, can work, but choose not to. That's the difference. But why? Why does it matter? If you're working hard, why does it matter that people around you don't work? Here's a couple of reasons. Number one, because laziness is contagious. It's contagious. If you find yourself with a group of people who have nothing else to do, it will be very hard for you to accomplish the work that you have. And I want you to notice that laziness becomes a cultural thing. It is not hard for us to see laziness in the suburbs, to see laziness in the country, and to see laziness even in the ghettos. Drive in the ghettos today. And what you will see are people who have nothing else better to do. And one of the things that would help uh, our friends and loved ones who find themselves and our fellow man in those ghettos would be to put to work men especially. Why is there so much crime in our cities? Because a great number of our young men are sitting around doing nothing. And what I learned early on in my teenage life was I got in the most trouble when I had nothing productive to do. Even King David, King David, who should have been at war with his army, was lazy and he stayed home. 
He should have been leading his armies into war, but he stayed home and he was bored one night and he strolled along the roof of his castle and he found himself with nothing better to do than to become a peeping Tom. And he would lose a great deal of blessing because he was lazy. So we need to stare clear of lazy people because it's contagious. And this is true, by the way. It is hard to work when others are at play. Uh, on Saturday nights, I devote a great amount of time to the writing of my sermon. And on Saturday nights, it's fun time at the Bedall House, okay? Kids don't have school in the morning. It's been a great time of, of enjoyment. And, and I have to make a conscious decision that I cannot work in the presence of my family as they're enjoying time off, enjoying a movie, enjoying fun. Why? Because Sundays are coming, and I've got to get some work done, and I have to remove myself because if I stay there where there's laxness, I will never see the importance of sitting down and doing a job. It is hard to work hard when everybody else is having fun. Idleness, laziness can be contagious. Number two, laziness goes against God's command for his people. Turn a couple pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. He says this, starting in verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. What? To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you. The scriptures are very clear. We're to live quietly, mind our own affairs, and work with our hands. That's the instruction of the apostles, and it remains true today. A faithful Christian is a hard-working Christian. Why? Because God demands it. God has seen fit to keep people busy on this earth by being productive parts of a community by working. It's to our job. It is what we're called to do. The final reason that we are not to hang around idle or lazy people is it damages the testimony. Stay right there in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. God wants Christians to have a strong work ethic because it gives us a good testimony with the outside world, with the unbelieving world. But how's Paul going to move these lazy people to productive living? Notice he gives an example. Notice verse 7 back in our text. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any one of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to, in, to imitate. So let's stop there. Paul says, okay, here's how I'm going to teach you what it means to be productive. Now notice what he says. You need to work hard. You need to work hard, but don't have to follow my ways. No, notice he says, it's not do as I say, not as I do. He says, do as I say, as I do. Notice the phraseology he uses. Toil, labor, working night and day so that we might not be a burden 
to you. Paul made a decision. He didn't have to. God has called people, the church, to minister to those who minister to them by taking care of their daily necessities. We have been given the charge to provide for God's people, or provide for the pastors God gives us. That's our job. That's the church's responsibility. Paul says, listen, I've made a choice. It doesn't have to be this way, but Paul has made a choice to continue, if you will, his day job while ministering to the church. And he's going to give reason why. But before I give this reason, I want to stop and remind you that in part of this church are a group of individuals that are provided for their daily necessities so that they can give themselves fully over to the Lord's work. It's biblical, it's right, and it's our responsibility as a church to provide in that way. And I want you to know that some of the most hardworking people I know serve full-time in this role, and they should be commended for it, and they should be honored and respected for that, and their ministry should be appreciated for that. And statements like, well, pastors only work one day a week, ha, 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 is just stupid. Okay? I see people here working hard for you and for their God. But I have, as Paul does, a unique experience. And this passage gives me an opportunity to speak very uniquely about my calling to you as a people. And I do so, and I know that by doing this, it may come across as self-aggrandizing. Please hear me, I share this with all humility, and I've not ever, to this point, ever shared this before. But this passage gives opportunity. Paul speaks to the issue of being bivocational. And he speaks to exactly where your teaching pastor is. I have another job. And I have another job for a particular reason. I don't have to. Whenever I tell anybody that I'm a bivocational pastor, right away they think that I'm pastoring this small little church of people who are unable to pay a full-time salary. And then I tell them how large the church is and that we have multiple campuses, and they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you do that? That goes against all of culture. Pastors in big churches, they get paid full-time salary. They don't have any other job but this. So what in the world? Why are you, Badal, doing it this way? Just as Paul was a tent maker, making tents during the day, ministering when he had opportunity, so I do the same. And I want to give a couple reasons why. Number one, just as Paul so as not to be a burden upon the church. I don't want to have to be a burden and my daily necessities to be a burden. So I have an ability and I have a luxury, quite frankly, to work a job that allows me not only to work, but to also have opportunity to serve. And so if I can provide for my own daily necessities, any dollar that I can save the church can be used in another gospel endeavor. And so the money that you give to the church that doesn't have to be given for me to uh, have daily necessities, God has uniquely given me an opportunity to not be a burden in that way. Now, what that doesn't mean is that our other full-time staff members are a burden. No, we are called to serve in that way. But like Paul, I have made a decision that I want to do it so as not to be a burden in that way. Number two, I'm bivocational as Paul is because my working is a reminder to you, the congregation, that you can work really, really hard in the real world 
and still find time and energy to serve the Lord in ministry. You cannot look me in the eye and tell me I just don't have time to serve the Lord. It falls on deaf ears. I've put in a long week of catering already. And then sprinkle within that a day and a half here in the church office, counseling and ministering and helping lead the church. Last yesterday was a full day, started 7.30 yesterday morning, and I say this just to show you that just as Paul, we work night and day for you. I didn't make it to bed until almost 1.30. Finished the sermon at 12.30. It's hard work. But here's the thing. I do it because I love it. I do it because it honors God. I do it because God has called me to that unique experience and he's enabled me to do so. And so it's an opportunity as an example to say, if Tim and Amanda can do it, then surely I can do some of this. Surely I can step out of my comfort zone and, and, and follow their lead and imitate that kind of hard work. And we've got that going on all over the place. It's not just by Tim. We got people that are working just massive hours at work and then come and serve. A uh, couple people I would bring up into context. We have some world travelers. Phil Beatty's in the back right now. I know he doesn't want me to talk about this. He travels to Germany almost on a weekly basis and he's faithfully here every Sunday working. Uh, Pete Stoneberg is all over the place in this world, traveling to London and Japan and China and all of that, and then faithfully on Sunday mornings is here to lead us in worship. We've got great examples of people who work hard and then volunteer their time to serve God. If you are telling me you don't have time to work, either you are working harder than anybody else I know, or listen, you're being lazy. There's time to serve and to be a benefit to others. The final thing that being bivocational does, it gives me great confidence to speak to the lives of the people in the church where you cannot say, well, it sure is easy to have a cushy church job and not have to work in the real world. Tomorrow morning, I will get up just like you and I will go to the real world just like you and deal with real world people and real world problems and people who listen to me don't give a rip on what I did in the church on Sunday morning. They look at me as Timbadol, caterer extraordinaire. We've got a problem. Employees that don't care what I did the day before who want to see me work like the rest of you. And so it gives me great confidence. And I say so, listen, I have to deal with the same problems you have to. And none of it gives me the ability nor you the ability to sin against God and be lazy, complacent, and to not do what God has called us to. What an opportunity we have. Do you recognize that you have the great opportunity to work? What a blessing. What an opportunity. Now Paul says, listen, it's such an opportunity that if you fail to do it, then you don't get to eat. If you don't see the blessing that work is, if you have the ability to work and you don't, then listen, you tell that person at dinner time, no food for you. I'm not giving it to you. I'm not sharing food with you because you should have been working and when you fail to work, you will fail to eat. And so Paul says something that seems harsh. 
But God has called us to work, and he has called us to love God and do what he's called us to do and love others by providing and caring for those socially closest to us and then not be a burden on others. So Paul says, follow my example. I toiled night and day. I worked hard on your behalf, and I never saw to just coast on by. I could have. I'm the apostle. I'm an important guy. I could have had you waiting on me hand and foot. But listen, I worked hard amongst you. And there's nothing more wonderful than serving God and serving others and serving yourself by working. We have this dichotomy, by the way, that, that there is sacred work and secular work, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. I want you to know this morning that I cannot separate my job as a caterer and my job as a pastor. And here's why. Because I do all things, whether I eat or drink, I do all things to the glory of God. And so God is glorified. Listen, as I'm catering a, 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 an event or preaching a sermon. And when I do those things with the glory of God and in obedience to God and his word, God can say to all of those things, whether you are doing it in a workplace or in the church, well done, good and faithful servants. So Paul gives an encouragement. Notice verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do your work quietly and to earn your own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul closes this passage by giving some encouragement. We need to apply to our lives. We need to apply to the next day, tomorrow's day of work. First of all, we are to work quietly. We are to live and work quietly. There are two reasons that Paul gives as to why he says that. First of all, to work quietly is to work in such a way, not because you are told to do so, but because you want to do so. How that would revolutionize the way that we work. Think about this. If your mom woke up every morning and said, well, I got to love you. I got to feed you. I got to make sure you have clothes on your back. I have to make sure your daily necessities are taken care of. I didn't want to make your lunch, but I guess I have to make your lunch. She wouldn't be all that great of a mom, right? We'd feel pretty guilty. But if you have a mom who says, I get to make your lunch. I get the opportunity to love on you. I get the opportunity to provide for you. I get the opportunity to serve you. Then we have been graced by an incredible gift. And what we need to do tomorrow when we go to our places, whether we're teachers or, or bankers or garbage men or truckers or, or uh, in the finance world or whatever we do, blue collar, white collar, no collar, whatever we do, the Christian's job is to say, praise be to God, I get to go to work tomorrow. God has enabled me to be able to work and provide for my family and to minister into the community and I get an opportunity to go into a workplace that doesn't know Jesus and show them what it means to work unto the glory of God. Let me tell you something, that will change your commute tomorrow morning. What an opportunity I get to work quietly. Number two, to work quietly, literally means to work in such a way that it doesn't make those you work around want to kill you. 
how terrible would it be? And I know it's true. It's too big of a church to not have this be the case. That some of you, when you walk into your workplaces, people roll their eyes. Ah, he's back. She's back. How sad is it that some of you, that your boss says, is one of the worst employees they have. It's unbecoming of a Christian. And God says that we should work unto the Lord in all that we do. And so it is not fitting for the people of Village Bible Church to be followers of Jesus Christ and to be hated in the workplace, either because we're lazy or good for nothing. And God says it should not be the case. It is unfitting for a Christian to be known for that in their place of employment. Paul then says, make sure you earn your own living. While the church is a place that we share and give and are to be generous to those who are in need, the church is a place where people are called to take care of themselves. Now listen, we are in a generation right now, and I don't know what happened. I don't know where the switch took place, because I don't remember growing up in this kind of country. But we're in a country right now that says, I want everything for free. Okay? That's not what I grew up in, and I don't know where it happened. I didn't get the memo of that. And I don't mean to be political, but my kids love Bernie Sanders. Why? Because Bernie promises that we're going to get everything for free. Listen, I learned something from my Middle Eastern father. Nothing is free, all right, except for salvation in Jesus Christ, but it'll cost you your life. And we've got to recognize that our culture says that you can have all of this and you never have to do anything in return. That may be socialism, but it's not the gospel. Paul says very clearly, if you can work, then you work so you can eat. Now notice he says, earn your Living. Earn your own living. Two things I want to say about that, and we'll be closing here in a moment. Number one, earn means you got to do something. Salvation is free because you can't earn it. Work, you have to earn a paycheck. And so you have to earn. You have to work. And so you can't sit around having someone give you something. You have to earn it. And notice, earning is on the front end. You have to gain yourself capital by extending some sort of job or some sort of gift that you have to the world around you. God has given me a unique gift that I have, the ability to feed lots of people. And I extend that gift to others. And in turn, that gift then earns me capital, money, so that I can then provide for my family. Now, there are two things I need to recognize. My earning and my living must be in concert with one another. Laziness, listen, laziness is a malady of the American people because, of course, far too many of us are living overextends our earning. Does that make sense? So if you've got thousands of dollars of credit card debt, your living has extended past your earning. Paul says that that's laziness, that your earning must be in concert with your living. And so if you are living higher than your earning, you're being lazy. It's not your money. And there's great truth to that fact. So we need to make sure that our earning, if we make a certain a dollar figure, that our living is that. No matter what our neighbors do, no matter what the Joneses do, our earning should match our living and our living 
are earning. Notice this responsibility is on you. He says, earn their own possessive living. You're not to per se worry about my living, and I'm not to worry about per se your living, that as Christians we are to take care of ourselves, and when trials and tribulations and unfortunate things happen, then we are called in those moments to bear one another's burdens, not a minute sooner, not a minute later. We're to provide. We are to minister. Paul says a man who is unwilling to provide for his own family is worse than an infidel. Paul says that in his letter to Timothy. Finally, Paul says, listen, you need to be encouraged to not grow weary in doing good. One area of laziness that we have as a people is that we just don't do good. We withhold good things from others. We hold with good because we recognize it's going to mean more work for us, that we don't want the trouble. We withhold good and we grow weary in doing good because it means that we may have to sacrifice, we may have to give more of ourselves. And Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. What an opportunity as gospel carriers to carry this message, this this, uh, wonderful treasure we have in jars of clay, to push pride and to care for those around us in doing good and being productive. So how does it, how do we not grow weary in doing good? When we go to work tomorrow, we say, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to make my boss a happy individual by doing what they tell me to do in the first time and not arguing and not belaboring it and not calling them every name in the book, but doing as I am called to. By being of a support to the world around us, by taking up the slack that we've had in our lives and being the best that we can be. By doing good, we enable God's message to be clearly articulated through us that we have been changed by the Creator God who has worked so hard on our behalf. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't let opportunities pass you by. I have the great luxury of being married to a woman who shows me what it is to do good, to change her schedule, to provide for others, even at times when it means the loss of something of her own. You know, we live in a lazy culture, a lazy culture that has ceased to do the hard stuff and is unbecoming of us as Christians. Let the people of the Fox Valley area be able to say of this church, that is a group of hardworking people. We don't know why they work hard. We don't understand it, but they go beyond the call of duty and work with excellence, and they are not known to be a lazy people. Why? Because God in his word has called us such, such a task. And we have the example of wonderful moms and wonderful women in this church have shown us the blessing and honor that can come from such a life. So let us work hard tomorrow and the next day and the next day as if we're serving the Lord himself. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word this morning and opportunity to love on our moms. Thank you for the gift of mothers the gift of wives, the gift of women, Lord, and the impact that they have on on us as men and as a church and as a community. Thank you for their example of hard work. Lord, I pray that they will see the fruit of their labor and the lives of their children and the lives of their family and the workplaces where they find themselves. 
Lord, we know we're, we would not be the church that we are if it wasn't for their hard work, and so we honor them and, and affirm their work this morning. But Lord, we are reminded that we are called to work hard. None of us want to hear that. But you've called us, you command us to that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would work hard. Whether we find ourselves as, as one on a pastoral staff serving the church in that way, that our pastors would continue as they have thus far to work with all their heart and mind for the glory of God and the good of your people. For others who find themselves working, whether in the home or in a workplace, Lord, that they would dedicate themselves to a diligent work ethic knowing as you told the church at Colossae that not just work under the eyes of human men and women, but to work knowing that we are working under your management as well. Lord, it would be our desire and our hope that as you um, would see us one day face to face, that you might be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Lord, give us the grace we need tomorrow. I get that there are tough work experiences facing some of our people. That it's hard to get up and work. Our bodies are tired. Our minds are filled with anguish. We work for hard masters and supervisors. But, Lord, that you, just as you did in the life of Joseph, would give us blessing and that everything we do as we work hard would prosper those around us so that you might receive the glory and the praise and the honor and the glory. Now, Lord, send us forth into our activities of the day and give us a great week of work and school. We love you and give you the glory for everything that's been said and done. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said.